0: Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the saints who have gathered here today. Lord, we pray for those who are watching online. Lord, for blessings for them. We pray for the church in Los Angeles, wherever she gathers. Lord, that you would bless the church, in particular, churches that are faithful in teaching your word We live in a culture where people crave words, words from men, so-called prophets who have fresh revelation and ignore your true and lasting word. Lord, we come to your true and lasting word here today and pray, Lord, for the meal before us, that we would feast upon it, that you would fill our hearts with your word and that we would leave today full and overflowing That we might be of service to others around us to those you have placed in our lives lord have your way with us in the study of your word here today and we ask this in the mighty matchless name of jesus amen the title of my message today is comfort in covenant with the creator comfort in covenant with the creator today i want to take us into the word of god to find comfort in our creator ...in the midst of these chaotic days in which we find ourselves. Uh, That said, please turn in the Bible to the Hebrew prophet Isaiah... ...and find your way to the 40th chapter in Isaiah. This is a wonderful passage to turn to in these chaotic days for comfort from our Creator... ...who has joined Himself in covenant with the people of Israel... ...who we'll read about in the book of Isaiah. The people to whom Isaiah prophesies. The people to whom Isaiah addresses in this text. When you get to the 40th chapter in the book of Isaiah, you will see that it begins with a divine call concerning comfort that comes historically in a time of chaos. Draw your eyes at the text, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Verse 2 Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call her out. Look at the beginning of verse 3 A voice is calling. So the chapter begins with a calling, a calling out to Jerusalem, a voice that is calling and the voice is none other than, according to verse 1, the voice of the Lord. God calls out to his covenant people in a time of chaos, telling them of his everlasting comfort in the face of their discomfort and this chaos as violence and injustice was ripping apart the nation of Israel. Now in speaking about chaos today, I am pastorally motivated to take us to this text. I'm pastorally motivated as I'm thinking about our congregation and I'm thinking about believers in this nation and thinking about the the rampant violence and injustice that is in our land and pastorally helping our people to process that according to God's word. Most glaringly, I think about the systemic injustice of abortion in our country. The most vulnerable among us who are executed daily in the so-called land of the free while corrupt politicians and powers silence the screams of the unborn in the name of choice. They repackage execution as a mere surgical procedure and intolerantly malign any who dare to stand with science and truth, not to mention to stand for what is ethical and what is just. Thinking about what is just, justice. In the news, we regularly see reports of people in power who do unjust things, and they seemingly get away with it. They hide behind politics, they blame shift the chaos on anything and everything besides those who should take responsibility, both individuals and institutions. Not to mention the cultural elites who are controlling state powers while comfortably housed in ivory towers. Meanwhile, down here in the streets, the commoners see and smell and live in chaos. Properties and flames creating thick clouds that billow over cities, literally clouding over the madness and the aftermath left below in the ground in struggling communities whose existence becomes imagery to be exploited by the power brokers for sordid gain. By way of introduction for today's message, I'm reflecting on the chaos of our culture because it sets the stage for the chaos in Isaiah's world. We will get into Isaiah's world. We will get into the passage of Isaiah 40 and see the prophet's words of trouble in his own day. But I begin today's message prefacing it with our own turmoil and our own present realities so that the word of God can be applied to our context here today as we reflect upon the parallel of the prophetic witness of Isaiah to God's people. So here's the preface of the message. That's the first point on the outline, the preface. After the violence and confusion of 2020, not to mention 2019, folks really hoped going into 2021 that things were going to get better. New Year's Day, yay, 2021, things are going to get better. At least that's what we thought, but things appear to be worsening. We began the year in January with the storming of the United States Capitol. Speaking of which, this week there was new footage released from the DOJ. I don't know if you saw it after pressure from 14 media organizations who filed a legal motion in federal court to see the video, it was released this week, showing the chemical and physical assaults on Capitol Police officers, among them Brian Sicknick, who died that night uh, from two strokes. Seeing the violent video was a reminder this week as I watched it several times. It was a, a vivid reminder of the chaotic beginning of our year, not to mention the many racialized and violent videos that play in our media capturing hatred, darkness, death, and destruction in our culture. This Sunday, today, this is the first Sunday of May. The first Sunday of May and last month was filled with madness, was it not? Uh, this, this, This week, just this week, April 30th, more than 150 people were injured and 45 were killed in Israel in a stampede at a religious festival. Seeing the images of that and, and seeing the death, uh, I'm just overwhelmed thinking about the chaos of our world. On the 27th, closer to home, in fact, really close to home for us here in Los Angeles, we saw just this week two who were killed in a series of drive-by shootings in Exposition Park in downtown L.A., including a Starbucks drive through that led to an hours-long police chase and a deadly standoff on the freeway. April 19th, Uh, Further away from Los Angeles, the Daily Mail was reporting on a Christian man, Nabil Salama, who was executed on video by Muslim terrorists in Egypt. They said the murder was, quote, a warning to Christians. His church issued a statement saying that he, quote, kept the faith until the moment that he was killed. On April the 18th, 2021 Jaslyn Adams, a seven year old African-American girl was shot and killed while accompanying her father in his car at a McDonald's drive-through by two unknown suspects who are still at large. The tragic murder was underreported. We didn't hear calls to say Jaslyn's name uh, as the news was processing and politicizing the Chauvin verdict and the death of a teenager in a knife fight on the 20th who was fatally shot. And our culture immediately rushed in the face of these incidents to its entrenched and bipolar sides, not to mention its narratives. Dividing everyone rather than mourning together over the dead, humans made in the image of gods whose lives were lost. There's so much shouting instead of listening. There's so much confusion, and the media loves it. The media loves it. Monetizing tragedy while making people angry, You know we could work together for a common good, but no, we choose to tear each other apart as a nation while evil runs rampant. Chaos continues. Indeed, it is thriving and it is quite lucrative. The thriving of evil was evident in April. I've highlighted to you incidents from the 27th and the 20th and the 30th and the 18th. The month was filled with chaos and confusion. April 15th, there was a mass shooting that occurred at a FedEx ground in Indiana. Nine people were killed, including the gunman, a 19 year old former employee who committed suicide. Seven others were injured, including four, by gunfire. On April 11, 2021, Dante Wright was fatally shot by a police officer during a traffic stop and an attempted arrest for an outstanding warrant. April the 7th, former NFL player Philip Adams killed six people, including a prominent doctor, his wife, and his two young grandchildren, before taking his own life. April was filled with chaos. March was filled with chaos. March 31st, four people, including a child, were killed and another person wounded in a mass shooting at an office complex in Orange, California. On March 29th, an armed 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago was running from the police, which ended with him being shot and killed. On March 22nd, 2021, a mass shooting occurred at King's Super's supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. 10 people were murdered. March 16th, eight people were killed at three Atlanta area spas which raised concerns around anti-Asian violence that we've been seeing in our culture, or at least it's been receiving press. New data revealed over the past year the number of anti-Asian hate incidents has been on the rise and a disproportionate number of attacks have been directed at women. Women. It's sobering. Women and children in this land of the free are, are, are not free. They, they live in fear. As noted, not even babies in the womb are protected in this land of the free. Meanwhile, politicians blame their political opposition on the mess. It's the left's fault. It's the right's fault. They blame murder on guns and ignorance on a lack of funds. In fact, a presidential speech this week did just that. Our politicians propose to throw money at our nation's deepest social and spiritual problems while suppressing the very prophetic witness of Christ's church that has been given the resources from God Almighty to bring comfort to the chaos, not to mention godly repentance to godless rebellion. Speaking of the church, we face a subtle satanic temptation in times like this to get sucked into the secular tribalism and quarrelsomeness of our day. Instead of remembering that the darkness is in the dark, instead of remembering that we have been given a light to shine in the darkness, we can, if we're not careful, become jaded and combative towards others on tertiary issues that take us away from the bright, shining face of Christ in the darkness. Further, further, we can develop an us-versus-them attitude Taking on the label of the cultural warrior instead of the compassionate lifeguard, saving the drowning, and more powerfully, reviving the dead by the power of the gospel. The Apostle Paul told the church that we are ambassadors of God's kingdom. Now that's a label to wear with honor ambassadors of the king. I I fear, however, that many have forgotten this gracious and high position that we have been given and tragically run instead to other labels and other causes that feed our national idolatries. Isaiah takes aim at the national idolatry of his day. He takes aim at the nation in the book of Isaiah. He takes aim at, at the sins of the surrounding societies as well. Hopefully you have chapter 40 in front of you, and for context's sake, it is worth noting that chapters 1 through 39, always want to give you context, we're jumping into chapter 40, so what's happening before that? Chapters 1 through 39 are focused on, or give emphasis to, Jerusalem. In the midst of the Assyrian Empire's looming threat to the nation, as if that was not scary enough, Isaiah prophesies of another foreign power, Babylon, who is on the horizon, who will crush Jerusalem. Chaos is the context of the text in front of us. And, 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 and then moving from chapters 1 through 39 to chapters 40 through 66, so that I can situate chapter 40 that we'll survey today, the reader is given comfort in this section. So we're stepping into a place of the book where there's a transition from chaos to comfort. Hence, the title of today's message, Comfort in the Covenant with the Creator, will move from chaos into comfort as you step into this section of chapters 40 through 66. The reader will be given comfort with the revelation that chaos will not win. The chaos monster will be slayed by the Lord of glory and covenantal faithfulness to his people. Though Israel has strayed from the Lord and brought madness upon themselves in their disregard for the divinely given Mosaic mandates, the Torah, god would nonetheless nonetheless be merciful to them so again here's the context there's chaos and the chaos was not without reason the people had brought the chaos upon themselves the first 12 chapters of isaiah make that very clear in god's providence he ordained to use the the foreign powers that were coming upon them and adding to their own their own dysfunctional chaos that they had created and that was going to take place in the sovereign plan of god in order to punish sin. They would be judged by God, and God would also not only judge his people, but also the nations. In chapters uh, 13 through 23, you can see that loud and clear. He will judge the nations, which are good reminders for us in the midst of our chaos, knowing that God's mercy and his judgment are realities that our world will face. Evil will not win. Evil will not win. And going back to what I said about the darkness and remember, remembering that the darkness is in the dark and our call is to go into the, into the darkness with the light of Christ, we know that those in the darkness will face divine judgment and that ought to lead us in compassion, to cry out to the darkness. Forgiveness, come, there's forgiveness to be found. There's, there is light, come, run to the light. As well, it is a sobering reminder to us of of the judgment of God that hangs before us as God's people. We mustn't think that we are are free from judgment. Now hear me, while the gospel assures that I ultimately will not receive the judgment of damnation that I deserve because Christ died in my place and paid the debt that I owed, yes, yes, the gospel assures that I ultimately will not receive that judgment because Christ has already taken that judgment. Nevertheless, I still come under judgment. I still come under the discipline of the Father. And he is actively bringing judgment into the church. And always has been. Don't don't believe me? Ask Luke about Ananias and Sapphira. Ask Paul about about those that he described in Corinthians 11. who Who were dying and who were under the wrath of God for their sin in the church. Okay then, moving along with Isaiah's context. And thinking about our context and the preface before us. I'm trying to parallel the the chaos of our day and the chaos of His day and the judgment of God on the nations then and now and the judgment of God upon His people now. In chapters 24 through 27 in the book of Isaiah, things get really apocalyptic. In chapters 28 through 33, there's these hard words that God brings upon the people. So as we look at the chaos, as we begin this message thinking about things going on in our world we got to keep the gaze at ourselves as we come here today. It's not a us versus them as we watch the news. We realize where we would be but by the grace of God. That brings us to the passage. Let's move from the preface to the passage. Move to the text. Look at it again. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. ...that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand... ...double for all her sins, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness... ...make smooth in the desert the highway for our God. This is where comfort comes, as the people turn from their present plight to look ahead... ...specifically to look to the eternal God and his everlasting covenant with his people... This puts things in perspective. Juxtapose the, the, the eternal one. Juxtapose the eternal one with the temporary moments in life. Juxtapose the Creator, who is eternal, with the temporary moments of chaos that they were experiencing. This leads me to the first point under this point of the passage, which is passing life. In verses one through eight, we read about passing life. ...and that serves as a comfort to God's people through the prophet Isaiah. Draw your eyes at the text and see how Isaiah reminds them. In verse 6, a voice calls out, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? Here's what you call out, all flesh is grass. And its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Forever. Forever, ever. Life is passing. In the midst of of chaos we forget this. We forget this. We stop looking at the one who is not passing... ...the one who is forever and ever and ever... ...and we get our eyes on these temporary things... ...and what that does is it, it, it breeds panic. And let me remind you that predators prey on panic. In our case, they will even use the pandemic... ...for playing on panic for purposes of power... ...and packing their pockets. My, my heart broke this week watching the news... ...and seeing reports of activity in the black market... ...selling fake drugs and fake vaccines... ...to people who are suffering... And are fearful of, of COVID. You know, as we say, there's a you know, there's a special place in hell for people like that. You go just, I mean, that's so, that's horrible to, to, to do that to people in a time like this. In India, the, the COVID surge has exposed the ruthless global black market for oxygen. There are sellers that have jacked up the prices of oxygen tanks by a thousand percent. People are literally selling air to people who are dying and they are willing to watch you die instead of give you oxygen if you don't have enough money. That's cold-blooded. Now, in the context of Israel, they were surrounded by this kind of cold-bloodedness and cutthroatness. Babylon is watching them die. But guess what? Babylon will fall. Babylon will fall. The prophet brings comfort to the people in the midst of their fears and anxieties, reminding them God stands. God's word stands and God's word has secured the future of Israel. There is no need for you to panic, saints. You know, in the midst of anxiety, a person become, can become overwhelmed if they forget that what they are in in that, in that moment, they can become overwhelmed if they forget that it will pass. When you believe that, that what you are in is, is the way it's going to be and that's just it and what you are in is it or, or even worse when you believe that it's going to get worse, the anxiety moves to panic and despair and depression. As one sufferer describes, and I quote, your heart races, your body temperature rises, your hands may shake, your stomach may churn, your thoughts may start spiraling to the worst that could happen and suddenly you feel so unequipped like everything's going to fall apart and you won't be able to handle it. It can feel so powerless when anxiety takes over, almost like your brain and your body are being hijacked and there's little you can do to feel safe or in control. Psychologists and scientists know the power of cognitive therapy at this point when someone is trapped in the moment and thinks this is it, this is it. And speaking to that, they they will use techniques in cognitive therapy that involve, when you read the literature on this, reminding the sufferer this line. This will pass. Believe this. Believe this will pass. Because when you don't believe that, you'll be trapped in your panic You'll be overwhelmed, it will worsen. Hear these three words, this will pass. And so the prophet Isaiah says, comfort, comfort, comfort the people, tell them, look, the grass fades, Babylon will fade, this is going to pass, but never will God pass. The grass will fade, the grass will fade. And our lawn is a great illustration of that, (laughs) is it not? It's going to fade, it's it's, it's gonna be reduced. You can water it as much as you like, but that's what's going to happen. It will fade, but God in his faithfulness is unfadable. In the words of the prophet Snoop, unfadable, so please don't try to fade this. Anyway, I lost some of you, but back to the lecture at hand. Babylon was nearing its disintegration. The conquests of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, are closing in on Babylon historically... The people are longing for the yoke of Babylon to be broken and a chance to be free again. And the prophet Isaiah comes and he says, it's going to happen. This is going to pass. You you need to hope. You need to run to the creator. You need to run to him. Don't get sucked into the chaos. Run to the creator for comfort. Israel was struggling with that. Israel's struggling with hope. Hopelessness was setting in. The panic was setting in. The despair was setting in. Israel's believing this isn't going to pass. And the prophet's saying, this is going to pass. The people were beginning to give in to despair, and the prophet is crying out to them, no, 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 God is here. But the people were asking, where is God? Does God even care about us? In Isaiah, we learn that Israel not only wondered about the whereabouts of God, but they also complained that he was intentionally turning a deaf ear to their cries. Prior to this passage, the prophet dealt with the complaint that God was able to help, and now in this passage, in Isaiah 40, he deals with the accusation that God was unwilling to help. The prophet beckoned the audience to lay aside doubt and instead trust that the God of Israel had both the power and the will to provide for his people. Isaiah addressed their national identity as God's people, even though they were in exile. Even though they were in exile, Isaiah calls to them to remember the faithfulness of God over and against, over and against the seeming silence of God. You feel like God's not there. Let me tell you, he's there. Let me, let me remind you, let me remind you of his faithfulness. Let me remind you of his faithfulness in the face of your feelings. Let me remind you of his faithfulness over and against as well the silence of the Babylonian pantheon of false gods who were one by one biting the dust. However, the prophet of God tells the people, you were not destined to dust. You are not destined to wither like the grass. God has greater things for you. We move from this passing life in verses 1 through 8 to the next point of the prophet in verses 9 through 14 concerning the protected lambs. Passing life, protected lambs. These are words of comfort. Draw your eyes at the text and see how Isaiah pictures God as a shepherd watching over the flock. Verse 11 says, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And where does he lead them? Where does he lead them? Where is he taking them? Well, look at verse 9. Where does the good shepherd taking them according to verse 9? Where does he take Israel? He takes Israel up to the mountain of the land of promise, the Mount of Zion. The covenant that was made with their people, to be the the, the promised people in the land of promise that would bring prosperity and blessing to the nations. This, let me take you up to the land, the shepherd says. While you were in exile, get up on top of a mountain. Let me show you the land is still there. It's not gone. And my promise hasn't gone anywhere either. And I'm going to be bringing you back there. Get yourself up, verse 9, on the high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of the good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord your God will come with might. God comes with might. He will protect his covenant people. He will shepherd them through exile. He will take them literally through the valley of the shadow of death into the green pastures on top in Zion, the land of promise. The land that was once a barren desert which was made to flow with milk and honey would one day overflow again. And the nations around the Holy Land would see the power and the grace of the God of Israel. Which brings me to the next point. We've considered this passing life as a word of comfort in verses 1 through 8. We've considered his protection, the protecting of the lambs in verses 9 through 14. And now we see uh, referencing of the pagan lands in verses 15 through 20. To juxtapose to his people to show them his care in the midst of chaos. Verses 15 through 20 we read about God's plan of protection over his people in the face of pagan powers... Draw your eyes at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the the islands like fine dust. As one biblical commentator notes here, and I quote, compared to the greatness of God, all the power of the earthly nations is next to nothing. Like a drop of water or a speck of dust, the image should be reassuring to Israel since they are currently under the domination of foreign power. The prophet Isaiah tells Israel... Don't worry about the pagan powers. Don't worry about the foreign fighters. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Isaiah disses the nations. The prophets are like the original uh, battle rappers that are reducing all competition to nothing. In verse 19, the prophet exposes the craftsmen, the goldsmith, the silversmiths, and their fake idols. He clowns them. You're manufacturers of man-made gods who do not compare to, the next point on your outline, the providential Lord. These are the words of comfort in the midst of chaos, the passing life, the protected lambs, the pagan lands, and now the providential Lord. As we survey this 40th chapter, draw your eyes at verse 21. See the rhetoric of the prophet Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah reminds the reader that unlike the pagan gods whose deities were tribal and local and limited, that the God of Israel is the God of creation. In verse 22, it is Israel's God who reigns over the earth and the heavens. There is no competition. He is the best. Indeed, there is no competition because there is no comparison Verse 25, to whom then will you liken that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. There's no comparison. The point is clear. No competition, no comparison, because the Creator is holy. To be holy, by the way, means that you're set apart. That there's, that there's something about you that, that, that isn't about everything else. You're holy. You're different. You, you, you aren't like these other things. That's what it is to be holy. Nothing comes close to God. For Christians, we are reminded of this as we worship God, as we worship the God who has revealed himself. Isaiah isn't talking about a generic God. He's talking about a specific God. You know, people will say things like, oh, you know, all religions talk about God, and all roads ultimately lead to Rome. We're all talking about the same God. We'll all get there at the end. No, all roads don't lead to Rome. I've been to Rome. And Manchester won't get you to Rome. Crenshaw doesn't get to Rome. I mean, Sepulveda might get you to the airport, but it doesn't get you to Rome. All roads don't lead to him. We're not talking about a generic lowercase g God. We're talking about the true and living God. And there's a God who is, and there's a God that men invent, and the two are not the same. Isaiah is speaking of the God who is, the God who has revealed himself. And we continue in the tradition of the prophets and gathering to hear of the God who is, the God who has revealed himself, the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God of creation, the God of covenant with his people Israel, the God who birthed the church through the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the nations. As we reflect upon the God who is, we reflect not just on his identity, but we reflect on his work. His work in calling rebels to himself and forgiving them. His work in making a people for himself. His work in electing a nation that would bring healing to the nations. His work in establishing this thing called the church that would go to the nations of the world and proclaim the one who has come and proclaim salvation in him. Salvation that we need for we all in humanity have rebelled against the one who has given us life. The the punishment that fits the crime of rebelling against the one who has given you life is the taking back of life. And that's the reason why we die. Ten out of ten people die. Ten out of ten people sin. There is a correlation there. The wages of sin is death. And that is a horrible reality that we all must face. But behold the good news that God has come to give life to those who deserve death. We proclaim the identity of the triune God. We proclaim the work of the triune God as we gather. And we understand in doing this that our message of the gospel is not just about us. It's not just about saving sinners. It's ultimately about God. It's about God who's in control. It's about God who has ordained all things. And so while it may look like chaos to us on the ground, in the heavens it's the divine plan of God. What, what, what places His grace and His majesty and His power in full display... ...is that He is working through the chaos, providing comfort and grace and mercy. Like the creation itself, salvation shows God's infinite might. Speaking of creation, draw your eyes at the text, verse 26. He says, lift your eyes on high, see who created the stars. And the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and his strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Isaiah speaks of God's power. A power that never needs to be charged. It never runs out. You know, we live in this crazy cell phone world. I'm using my cell phone to keep my Bible open here. But, right, this thing is always running out. No matter what fancy new phone you have, it's always running out. It always needs to be charged But not God. He never runs out. His power is intrinsic to Himself. And in His grace, He takes what is intrinsic to Himself and makes it available to His people so that they can experience what is intrinsic to Him extrinsically, namely His power. We move now from this point about the pagan lands and the providential Lord to the next point, powerful living. In verses 27 through 31, We see the intrinsic power of God given to his people. Again, let me remind you of the context. It's all about chaos. I've paralleled some of our chaos in our culture to the chaos back then. And in making that parallel, we need to understand that that what was going on at the time was 10 times worse than what we are facing today as a nation. The people of Israel were in the midst of war. They're in exile. The ancient world power of Babylon is just wiping them out. In time, they had to assimilate into foreign cultures and, and, and foreign ways of living and even foreign worship in order to survive. Israel had, had felt then like God had forgotten them. Where are you? We, we're we wiped out. I mean, where are you? Are... Our, 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 our wives were, were raped. Our sons were killed in war. Our children don't worship the God of Israel. They worship these foreign gods. Our, our temple is in ruins. Jerusalem is overran and destroyed. Jerusalem was called the city of, of God. If you think burnt down buildings in the Pacific Northwest and, and, and lumber, you know, screwed into store shops and whatever, and you see those images and go, oh, wow, you know, Seattle or whatever. Oh, wow, it's crazy up there, right? Like Jerusalem, what happened to Jerusalem is infinitely worse. Everything is trashed. But Jerusalem is the holy city of God. They destroyed the holy city. They knocked over the temple where God dwelt. That then leads to the logical question that they would experience in their time of panic and despair and depression. If the God of creation is the God of Israel, then why is Israel in ashes? And we today in this dispensation in the church, we might be tempted to act like we never wonder where God is. But if we can take off our church masks and we can take off our church smiles, which you can't see behind our COVID masks, but... uh, and be honest we wonder at times where is God and sometimes we wonder out of sinful reasons sometimes out of ignorance sometimes out of pain sometimes just out of utter sleeplessness we're fatigued and we're tired and sometimes it's just a mixture of all of that but we go through moments don't we where we wonder where is God We've reflected on our chaos today and it might lead even some among us or some listening or those around us to wonder, you know, where is God? With all the evil in the world, with all the injustice in the world, with all the abuses of power, with all the corruption, you know, where is this God, Pastor Matt, that you speak of? We see, we, we see the legislation of evil, we see justice ignored and it makes people wonder why. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you assert, O Jacob? Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of God. So the prophet Isaiah asked them, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? In other words, why do you, why do you think that God is not in control? Why, why do you think that God doesn't care? Remember what is going on. Remember, Israel's lost everything. Remember the temptation, like with your temple toppled, to think this way. And Isaiah just jumps in and he goes, why would you even think that? Notice he puts verse 27, this in quotes. At least our English translation does that so we see that the prophet is quoting here in verse 27. Why why do you say, quote, my way is hidden from the Lord? This is a a question that the people were asking. Some scholars think that, in fact, this question may have been a colloquialism. There are others who think this might have even been a popular song of the day. And so Isaiah is, is quoting is quoting the, the poets and the singers of the day who are singing this kind of melancholy mindlessness. You know, God is hidden in his way. They're so depressed, and here the prophet quotes this: "My way is hidden." The idea of being hidden from the Lord has a negative connotation, by the way. It, when you think back into the Hebrew Bible and you think about when uh, Cain said in desperation to God in Genesis 4:14, 4, "I shall be hidden from your face," for example. And that was after he received punishment for his sin. I'll be hidden from your face. Hiddenness in the context of the Hebrew Bible. It's not due to God's incorporeal nature. God is spirit. He's he's immaterial. It's not because he's invisible. That's, That's not the hiddenness here. Israel understood that God was not a physical being. Rather than hiddenness in an ontological sense, what is being spoken of here is the human response to the existential angst of sensing that God is like far off of being unable to see him in the, in the thick clouds of chaos and going, where are you right now? This is why the gospel is everything to us, incidentally, because it involves both history and the opposite of hiddenness. The sun, the immaterial, invisible, immortal sun becomes a physical, mutable man, a physical being. He becomes a man. He becomes a human. And he doesn't just become a human, he still remains divine. He's fully God and fully man. The historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is God and man in one person, who came and still stands today to reconcile physical humanity to the immaterial God, who is the creator of all things. To to reconcile God's elect to the Father, the Son has come, And he has done so physically. There's nothing hidden about this. He steps into history. You can see him, you can touch him, you can smell him, you can hear him. And it is because of this historical fact of what he has done that I can stand before you in complete confidence today and call you to come to the one who is revealed in him. To call you today to come to Him and have your sins forgiven and be set free and have new life. You can right now confess your sin and give yourself completely to Him. He is alive. He is ascended. He is coming back. You can surrender to Him. You can let go. You can come to Him. You can be forgiven here, right now, and have something better than the hope of life after you die. You can be reconciled to the Creator of all things. And with this forgiveness comes God's pardon, and comes God's presence. I say what I said a moment ago, that you can have more than the hope of heaven, you can have Him. I say that because often I hear people who talk about the Gospel and they make it sound just like it's a ticket to heaven. Oh, it's more than that. I I like to refer to that as just gold digger religion, where you're just telling people all the things you can sort of get out of God. We live in this age of the prosperity gospel, and it's all about what God's going to give you. And it's just, it's gold digger religion. It's like, yeah, I'm not interested in you, but... You know, you're, you're otherwise unattractive to me, but you have a lot of money. So I think, you know, we should hook up. We should start a family. And later on, we'll divorce. And I'll get half of your stuff, because I was only in it for your stuff. There are many that speak of heaven, but very little about God. Many that speak of blessing, but very little of the God who blesses. Many who would be happy to get to heaven and find out that Jesus isn't there, because they didn't sign up because of Jesus. They signed up because of what they would get. And so I I labor on this point because I've come this day to call you to come to him as we do on every Sunday to call you to come to him in repentance and in faith for pardon and for his presence. Concerning his presence, this is not to say that at times we're not going to have feelings where we feel like he's not present. We're in a text, Isaiah 40, where God's people are feeling that way. It's a common human feeling. And maybe some of you today are, are wrestling with this. You feel disconnected from the divine. You wonder of his whereabouts. You you acknowledge that he's real, but you've grown cold or jaded to the reality of his presence in your life. The psalmist in the Hebrew Bible captures this sentiment with the rhetorical question in Psalm 10 verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Further probing the psyche of desperation, the psalmist describes the wicked who think in their heart. In Psalm 10, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He, he will never see it again, the psalmist writes in Psalm 10:11. There is a saying that if it feels like God is far off, guess who moved? And there is truth in that. Because God is ever-present. He is omnipresent. He is always near to us. And he is always gracious as well. So he does not come and go based on our whims. It was our father Adam and our mother Eve who ran and hid. It was God who graciously says to them, oh, where have you gone? He knows fully where they are. Yes, we will have feelings like he is distant, but those feelings are not because he has taken off. Rather, those are feelings that are intended to drive us to run to him and to drive us to the ground on our knees to cry out to him for forgiveness, for we have been chasing things other than him. Added to feeling hidden, Israel is also attributed with saying that their situation escaped the notice of God. And this may be in reference to Israel's right to the land of promise. As an exiled people, they would have been wondering, didn't you promise our father Abraham that we would have that land and here we are outside of the land? Lord, what's up? Rhetorically, the prophet asks why they are asking this. He uses rhetoric to show that they are wrong because they had forgotten the faithfulness of God. And it's so easy in the midst of hard times to have these feelings. We're acknowledging this. But in the face of those feelings, let the prophet call you out. Hear Isaiah, let him challenge you. Let him call you out. Do you not know, verse 28, look at it. Have you not heard, verse 28, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator to the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Rather than focusing them on their circumstances and the chaos, he points them to the creator and his nature. Continuing from verse 27, the prophet Isaiah showed himself to be a master of rhetoric as he raises these questions to point them to him. The prophet opened with the identical question in verse 21, have you not known, have you not heard? He's appealing to a common tradition that the prophet's audiences would have heard. It was a way of asking if they paid attention to the prophets. Haven't you heard this? Haven't you been reading the word? Don't don't you know this already? Let me point you back to your roots. You know this. Those of you who are parents today, right? You often have those conversations with your kids. Like, you know better than this. You know not to. And some of my kids are here, so I'm, I'm going to stick to the script and not embarrass them. But you know, like, I, you know you're not supposed to do that. But, 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 but no, 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 you know. So the prophet says, with fatherly love to the people, hey, look, you know. And he points them back to God. Look at what he says about God in verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks, might he increase power. Now, again, this is in prosperity gospel. This isn't so you can name and claim and get power for your raise at work or whatever. This is in the historical context of Israel exiled from the land. And he will give power to the exiles and bring them back to the land. In the last verse, Isaiah gives Israel four descriptive characteristics of God in order to remind them of who they have raised accusation against. In verse 29, he continues describing God by mentioning two of God's activities. Here, he gives he gives uh, uh, power to the faint. That's the first. This is an action that God is uniquely qualified for, as the prophet has already mentioned. God doesn't run out of energy. His cell phone doesn't run out of battery. You can always plug your little port into him, and there's always enough supply there. For God does not, verse 28, grow faint. The participle gives indicates that such help is not sporadic, but it is characteristic of God. It is intrinsic to him. He He is giving in his nature. The faintless God gives vitality to the faint. That's the first. He gives power to the faint. Now secondly, God gives strength to the powerless, we read in the text. The prophet has mentioned that God does not grow weary, which implies his limitless strength, his immutable and impassable nature, which qualifies him again to give himself in order to reverse the state of man by making the powerless strong and giving faint to to the faintless. Look at verse 30. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Let's think about this verse really quick before we move on. Once again, the prophet describes faint and weary. The prophet has already mentioned the word faint twice in verse 27 and verse 28. You see that? Now before the passage is complete, the prophet will mention it one more time in verse 31. Likewise, the prophet will mention the weary in this passage a total of three times. Verse 28, 29, and 31. These words capture the condition of Israel. The people were faint and weary from the stresses of exile, the chaos of their day, the, the, the politicians, the powers, all of that, all of that. They're, they're growing weary from that. And in this verse, the prophet showed that no one is exempt from faintness or weariness. No one's exempt so don't hear the words of the prophet or hear the words of your pastor today and think I'm talking about someone else, I'm talking to you. The text drives this point home that I'm talking to you, for he brings up those among them who wouldn't be feeling this, namely the youth. Because what, what is it about the youth? And, and old people in the house can say, yeah, I mean, right, like, oh to be young again, to not grow tired right it's the old who become tired it's the youth who are full of energy who are able to persist with limitless energy especially around bedtime what is that about you know it's like it's time for bed i have energy a dukin where did you get all this energy from right it's bedtime i'm full of energy the youth are full of energy but even the youth grow tired everyone this is for everyone to hear don't act like you're not weary don't act like you're not tired don't act like you haven't turned to other things to fill you up and not to the one who has come and who calls you here this day, the Lord Jesus the Christ. In these verses, the prophet parallels the strength of God against, against the youth. While the, uh, while, while the youth are seemingly have all this energy, Look look at God. God never grows tired. Even the strongest among us, even the most energetic among us, the youth, even they grow tired. The picture of God standing in contrast to humans is powerful. While the Israelites grow tired and they give up faith in God, God doesn't grow tired. He doesn't lose his faithfulness to his people. When they're sinning against him, when they're rebelling against him, he still continues to call out, comfort, oh comfort to my people. Isaiah's picture of the youth growing tired served a purpose for the next verse as the prophet went on to describe how one's strength can be renewed. Grammatically, this verse creates a contingent clause to establish a fact. God will renew their strength, but it is contingent upon their willingness to submit themselves to him. Draw your eyes at verse 31. Yet, hear the contingency, those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary oh to walk and not become weary oh to run and not get tired in recent weeks with uh gyms reopening uh and because i'm a person when i pay for something i force myself to do it so the gyms reopened uh noticed it on the bank card you know the gym membership starting to get charged again i guess i have to go back to the gym because i don't want to waste money got some covid 19 pounds to lose running on the Running on the treadmill, just feeling tired, feeling tired. Oh, to run and not to get tired. In his final verse, the prophet Isaiah explained to the exiles that the key to strength is found. And this is counterintuitive in waiting on the Lord. And it's counterintuitive in a culture like ours because we are a very busy culture. We're a doing culture. So much so that we place precedence on sort of human beings to such a degree that we disregard them as human beings. They're more human doings, and we place an emphasis on what you do and do and do and do, and you need to work and work and work and work, and you need to get and see you don't have because you 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 are not doing enough, and you got to do and do and do and and, and you you want to get stronger. You got to go harder. You got to lift heavier. You got to you got to keep going and going. And God says, you want to find strength. You got to wait you got to wait. Man, that's counterintuitive to me. The prophet says the key to strength is found in waiting. And not just waiting on your rear end, but waiting on your knees in hope. You wait on the Lord in hope. Some translations actually here will say hope instead of wait. And hoping and waiting, in terms of Hebrew etymology, they overlap. It's the same thing. To wait hopefully. To hopefully wait. In a poetic expression used most often in the Hebrew Prophets, we have this word kawa, and kawa means the hope in waiting. If you have printed out your outlines this morning, you'll see that I uh, quote from an, uh, a Hebrew uh, dictionary there at the bottom that gives you some of the semantic domain of the phraseology here of kawah. Hope as an underlining belief in the continuity of God and his activity in history against all odds. Hope that is expressed when humans are particularly aware of their finiteness contra God's infiniteness. Hope that is linked to the human need to draw on God's resources, especially when confronted with challenges in life. Hope that is rooted in the promises of God. Hope that is lived out in obedience to God. As Israel obediently waits on the Lord, the reader is presented with a unique prophetic paradox. Verse 30, Isaiah describes the young in exhaustion, and here he explains that those who aren't running around but are waiting hoping, they will become strong and outrun the youth. In fact, they will outfly the youth. They will mount up with wings. They'll be soaring above, the text says. It is worthwhile to observe here that the, uh, there is not the preposition on in the passage, which can be found in some passages with regard to flying, like Psalm 1811. So it seems best to render the phraseology here of growing wings. There's wings that just bust out of the back of Israel and metaphorically bring Israel out of exile back to the land of promise. Speaking of growing, in Isaiah 40, verse 30, we read, even the youths are going to grow weary. They're growing weary, but you'll be growing wings. It's significant that the text uses, again, the strongest among uh, humans to make this point, the youths those who are prime in their lives, they will grow tired but not you. This will be supernatural. God will raise you up, the message is clear. Man at his strongest is weak. Man, man at his greatest wisdom is foolish. We are prone to doubt, we are prone to fatigue, but God will raise up his people as they wait on him. Sometimes life can be so difficult for us, even as God's people, we're tempted to think that God is not with us That's a real temptation for God's people at various times in our lives. And that was the temptation for Israel in Isaiah 40. What a powerful picture, though, for Isaiah's readers and for us today. The eagle is still a very powerful picture in our contemporary setting. It's a national uh, symbol for many nations, depicting power and independence and sovereignty and beauty. In Jewish culture, especially, the eagle had an important symbol of deep political and religious meanings at the time of Isaiah. The Hebrew Bible, in fact, even compares God to an eagle in Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 8. 8. Not only was the eagle a powerful symbol, but the, the description of wings is equally potent. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the imagination of the ancient East was fascinated with winged creatures. The wing was an image of, a, of escape from earthly restraints. ...which in this context would have spoken intimately to the restraints of the Babylonian regime on the backs of the people of Israel... ...who out of their backs will grow wings and fly away. The image of the wings of an eagle is used in the Pentateuch to speak of Israel's deliverance from Egypt when they were held as slaves. The wings are images of abolition. Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad, abolition, flying away from slavery. And just as God delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt, so too He would deliver them from the bondage of Babylon, so too He would deliver us from the bondage of our sin. The Exodus is picked up in the teachings of the New Testament to describe God's deliverance of sin. And so, as I called you in this message to come and repent of sin and be saved by the triune God, let the imagery here call you again to come, to come and fly away, to soar over your sin. To fly over the judgment that will come to you if you do not turn. The Lord is calling you here and now. And with this call of the gospel, let me offer three quick points of conclusion. Three points that you have on your outline. In this sermon, I offered commentary on the doubts of Israel. I paralleled it to maybe some of the doubts that we might experience. We looked at the chaos of Israel. I paralleled it to some of the chaos that we're facing in our day in the preface of today's message before I pointed you to the passage. Three quick points with regard to reflecting on the passage to take away today. The first that you see on your outline is feelings. And the point that I want to pastorally caution you in, please, please hear me. I'm not saying that feelings are bad. Feelings are awesome gifts that come from God to His creatures. What I'm about to say is that feelings need to be ordered. Listen, feelings make horrible masters. But wonderful servants. They need to be ordered that way in subjection to that which is true because feelings can enslave us. Feelings can take us places that we shouldn't go. As it relates to the text of Isaiah in application, I want to say that feelings get the best of many people when it comes to waiting on God as Isaiah surfaces it and as Isaiah addresses their feelings of feeling like God's not there. When it comes to waiting for strength, when it comes to waiting for deliverance, feelings can, can wreak havoc on us. It's true for many in life. It's true just in general that, that, that many of us are emotional gluttons. We give into to indulgence of the emotional. We can follow our hearts. We can keep it real, which basically means following what you want to do. And this happens among believers. Believers will baptize it with spiritual-sounding language. If they're charismatic, they'll say, God told me. To do X, Y, or Z. If they're a cessationist, they'll say, well, other believers told me that I should do X, Y, or Z. It's simple confirmation bias that gets baptized as divine revelation and, and self-fulfilling prophecy take place through those who are led astray by their emotions. And as one of your, one of your pastors in this church, I just want to say, I, I love you and I want to caution you to be careful of emotions and where they take you. Isaiah's addressing a people that were led to believe that God wasn't there. And I don't know what sorts of feelings that you're wrestling with, and so hopefully this can hit many by speaking just generally. Be careful and seek the Lord and say, Lord, if what, what I'm feeling, bring it in subjection to you, the master. Pastorally, I also see this as a variable in what's going on today and what I discussed in the preface concerning the chaos of our times. What makes things so chaotic is that powers prey on the emotions of people. They prey on your emotions. If you don't see it their way, then you're a racist, you're homophobic, you're a science desire denier, you're a conspiracy theorist. And that's on both sides of our culture. They're both lobbing these things at each other. Meanwhile, they don't footnote their claims, and when they do, it's often an unreliable source. And people get so emotional, they get played, they get pimped by these powers. And ultimately, it's not about masks and shots and riots and police abuse and racism. Ultimately, listen, it's about demonic powers that want blood in God's creation and hypocrisy in Christ's church. Further, it's ultimately, for us as God's people, not about being on the right side or whatever interpretation of current affairs. It's about gospel fidelity to the facts of God revealed in Christ. So my first point is feelings. Watch out for those. My second point is facts cling to those. We're constantly being told in our culture about fake news. People pride their camp as being true and the others as fake. Mind you, I'm not suggesting that you don't study or you don't care or that one side might not be more right than the other side or anything like that. My point is that we put it in proper order, that we major on majors, especially in coming together as a church. That it is the facts of God and Christ that we cling to. It is the fact of our call that we have a mission that we go to. I fear, I fear that God's people are more passionate about their politics and their sports than they are the gospel. They're more knowledgeable about players in the NFL draft. They could rattle off their stats but can't tell you the catechism to save their lives. They know more about vaccines and they know more about COVID and they know more about this or that than they do know about God's Word. They could tell you more about Russia conspiracies than they can the Gospels in our New Testament. The church has gotten distracted by entertainment, by sport, has gotten distracted by quests for. Uh, sort of Gnostic facts that you can find out through watching videos online. And meanwhile, as God's people, the fact of God in Christ, the triune God who has come to save his creation, has been lost and has been brushed away. In a moment, we're going to take communion. So hopefully, this gives you a warning if you haven't gotten one already. When we take communion, they're on the table over there, the table over there. We are rehearsing facts when we do this. We are rehearsing facts together. This this juice symbolizes the fact of a man in Nazareth whose blood was spilled on the ground at the hands of the corrupt right and left of his day. Who was maligned by the fake news of his day. Who was distorted, discarded, beaten to a bloody pulp. This is that fact. The bread on the top symbolizes that the immaterial God took on matter and became a man who cried out to the world that was led astray following after its feelings, the fact of the God of creation who offers forgiveness to sinners. My three final points are emphasizing, be careful of those feelings, cling fast to the facts, the facts that ultimately matter and finally, the faithfulness of God. While Israel wandered, God never moved away. When you feel like God's, God's distant, as I said, you want to ask yourself who moved, because it's certainly not him. And further, he, he's omnipresent, so that's nonsensical anyway. He's always there. And he's always on the move in history. He's working through the chaos. He's ordained He's ordained this chaotic world that we live in for the praise of his glory so that as he takes the chaos and moves it to calm, as he takes rebels and makes them sons, all of creation goes, wow, look at this God. Look at his compassion. Look at his mercy. Look at what he has done. Look at this cup. God didn't look at the messy creation and send an angel to fix it, send a third party to fix it. He came himself. Open the top as you hold the symbol of his body, the bread, we are reminded of his faithfulness. We are reminded of his patience. We are reminded that we are waiting for him to come again. Brothers and sisters, is your heart heavy? Are you downcast? Are you despondent? Are you divided? Are you depressed? Do you feel that God has forsaken you? That God has forgotten you? That he has forgotten to be gracious to you? that his mercy is, has run out, that he's giving up on you. I'm here to assure you that surely he has not. I'm here to assure you that there is comfort and hope and healing and forgiveness in him, that he is using the chaos to sanctify and to prune his people. And there will be pain in that process. But oh, on the other side of glory, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun... We will see the hand of the Lord providentially in all of these things. From the vantage point of the disciples, when the Lord was hanging on that cross, a bloody pulp nailed to that cross. They go, what is going on? And they all ran in fear. 2,000 years later, we look back and we see what God was doing in the chaos of the cross. He was doling out the punishment that we deserve. He was paying a price that we could not pay. So let's eat the bread and let's give thanks that he did that for us. We live in a world that prides itself on its accomplishments. We live in a world that prides itself in being able to do anything that it sets its mind to. We go to the moon. We go to Mars. We're going to get up there. We live in a world that has so much power stored up in its nuclear weapons. It could destroy itself a number of times over. We live in a world that chases power. We live in a world that prides itself on its strength. But brothers and sisters, where is your strength this morning? Is it in the things of the world? Of course, the answer for the child of God and the answer of the text before us, if we confess, no it's not. Because the grass fades, the flower fades, all of this stuff will be gone. Our power is in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heavens and the earth. Our power is in the faithful God. Our power is in the God who took on flesh and died for us and bled out for us. So let us drink the cup. The Bible is full of examples of God's people placing their trust in things other than God. And in these stories and in these accounts, even Isaiah in front of us today as the prophet pulls that back and deconstructs what they were putting their, their hope in and calling them to wait, in the, in the face of this and, and with the taste of communion still in your mouth, let's come now and let's pray and sing and seek the Lord to transform us. We gather as the church to hear the word of God, not to, to learn mere information, but to experience transformation. So let's pray that the comfort and covenant with the Creator that we've discussed today in Isaiah 40 will become real in us. And let's lay down the things that so easily entangle us now, here now in prayer, and seek the Lord now as we pray and we sing. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Oh God, we come to you in prayer and we seek you to do a supernatural work. Lord, heal our broken hearts, I pray. Regenerate dead hearts, I pray. Bring humility to proud hearts, I pray. Bring strength to weary hearts, I pray. Heal our relationships that are broken, Forgive us our trespasses. Lord, forgive not merely us as individuals, but Lord, forgive our nation, forgive our city, forgive our families. Be merciful to us. Lord, I I pray that as we sing and we uh, close the service with a couple of songs, Lord, you would be doing a work in our hearts here today that none would leave here today the same that they entered. Draw us to you, Lord, I pray, and draw us toward one another, that we would grow together as your children, as a family. Lord, that we would know you in spirit and in truth here this day. Receive these final songs of worship, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.